All right, well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I, I've been sporadic the last few weeks in here because uh, I've been double booked. I've been with the teens for the last few Sundays, and I go back for one more Sunday next week, but I will be here for the, uh, the wrap-up. Um, what, uh, what we're going to do today is actually some material. This is part of a larger set of material that I usually present with a co-presenter. My lifelong best friend is a uh, minister out in uh, Cheatham County, and he's been doing that for 23 years. So a lot of experience at the local church, and, and he and I collaborate pretty frequently um, on places where mental health and congregational life intersect. Uh, he's not at a, a large church by Otter Creek standards, but a very impressively mental health savvy church. And so every year or two, we'll put together some new material and uh, this is material that we put together, I think, uh, for the first time, it was three years ago for the Lipscomb Lectures. And, you know, we, uh, we don't consider ourselves to be particularly well-known. You know, when people go to the lectures, they're typically looking for Randy Harris or, or Rubel, Mike Cope, someone of, of that stature. So we really didn't expect that we were putting together material for a large group, you know, we, we thought maybe a few folks would trickle in. And uh, we were, the classroom was absolutely full and has nothing to do with us. Uh, his wife was there, my parents. Beyond those three people, it was people that were coming because they perceived a need to talk about what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, later, that following spring, we did this same material out at Pepperdine. And not only, as, as little known as we may be here, okay, we're absolutely unknown on the West Coast. So again, our name is not pulling anybody in whatsoever. Not only was that the case, uh, that particular lectureship, N.T. Wright, the theologian, was on the, uh, was on the program at the same time as us. <laughs> and both of our wives were with us, and I said, you realize we're probably going to be speaking directly to our wives, and I'm not even sure about them, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to NT, right. We, it, was, it was standing room only in our class. Again, nothing to do with us. There is a felt need for people to talk about uh, this issue that we're talking about today. And uh, that's not only evident by the interest in classes like this, but when you meet people afterward, you know, folks hang around and you talk. Uh, and so it was really clear to me that this is important stuff. We're using a, a water motif today because what this is about is making sure that we have a source, right? So many of us are pouring out into other people. Uh, and, and many of you, whether you're in a helping profession uh, or uh, just in the course of your everyday life, you're, you're caregiving uh, and, and you're, you're constantly pouring out. But where do we go, right, to get our own vessel filled? That's what we want to talk about today. 
First things first, I think it's important to establish what we're not talking about. Uh, there is always some uh, hesitation when it comes to uh, talking too much about self-care because many of us have a, a sense of, of shame about being selfish. And we're not talking about uh, self-indulgence today. We're not talking about uh, living our life with greater selfishness. Uh, what we're talking about is self-care and the, the definition that I like to use for self-care is these are the things that you do for yourself to make you better for everyone else. The things you do for yourself to make you better for everyone else. Um, uh, when I first got into the, the mental health profession in the late 90s, everywhere you turned, people were talking about this idea of compassion fatigue. It was, and I don't know if you remember this, but it seemed like every continuing education thing you went to, every conference you went to, there was this sort of new idea that was compassion fatigue. I had one colleague even that said at one point, I've got compassion fatigue fatigue, right? We're, we're talking about it on such a regular basis. But uh, this is from that time period where this was really emerging as an as a area of interest for mental health professionals. Compassion fatigue, the product of bearing witness to the suffering of others. And it results in a reduced ability or capacity to be present with others. It also results in feelings of powerlessness, uh, feelings of isolation, feelings of, of confusion. So, so not good, right? Uh, but again, so many of us are pouring out so much and so regularly that this can emerge. Uh, and, we, and we may not notice it until we're already pretty far down that road. And so part of what I want to come out of today is uh, some ability to recognize this before we find ourselves too far into compassion fatigue. And we're going to talk about some things to avoid, some traps to avoid, as well as some tips to apply. Uh, before we do that, I actually have something for you to consider. This is a vignette from a great little book by Merle Jordan called Reclaiming Your Story. And, and he writes, if you're interested in uh, family of origin issues, if you're interested in how our past informs and shapes our present and our future, and, and in particular uh, as it relates to our sense of spirituality, uh, this is a good little resource. And in it, he gives this, uh, this example of, uh, of a priest named, uh, named Justin. And I want you to listen to this, and then I would love to get some feedback if Justin were to come to you, uh, what might you advise him? A priest named Justin had all the right credentials. He had had years of uh, therapy with various therapists and, and spiritual direction with spiritual directors. He had attended many spiritual retreats with various formats. He had a sound theological education uh, and lots of professional experience. But Justin was stuck even though he was not conscious of that. He was an overly responsible, overly committed, overly extended compulsive pastor who was an exhausted victim of people 
and institutions who needed and expected too much of him. Okay, so you know Justin. Somehow you have a relationship. You know this is going on in his life. He comes to you. You're in conversation with him, and, and you feel compelled to offer him some sort of advice. Uh, thoughts for him? Move. Move. <laughs> far, far away. Okay. When you're enmeshed with other people, you're not really available, or when you're codependent, or when they're in space with your own. Yeah. Uh, you're, you can't really give, except give to anybody. You know, you're yeah. Really, uh, when your boundaries aren't very good. Boundaries. Then you're not, uh, you're not able to be your best self. Right. You're the person God designed you to be. And clearly, that's a putting boundaries in place is something that doesn't come easily, if, if at all, for him, right? Yeah. I think the first step is uh, he has to have awareness that it's, it's not good. If he right. doesn't have awareness that it's not good, it's just wasted energy. And that was, it was in the vignette, right? Uh, uh, if I remember right, yeah, not even conscious of being stuck, right? Yeah, so awareness is good. He might be talking about something that sounds like compassion fatigue, sounds like exhaustion, but doesn't necessarily have the level of awareness that that's what he's experiencing. Okay. I would yeah. suggest um, actually scheduling time for himself, like scheduling okay. a night or you know, part of every weekend where you just say no to everything. And, and making, sounds like, Amy, you're saying make that decision before the time comes. Yeah, put it. People who are put it there. can't do it. Like, <laughs> right. Vermont. You ever, ever a mentally challenged son mm -hmm. for 47 years? Right. Now her husband, 85 years old. Right. She doesn't, she doesn't know how to extract people. She doesn't know anything that's different. Right. And she's exhausted. Mm. She doesn't know she's exhausted. Yeah. When you say doesn't know anything different, that, that's important. That, that sometimes in, uh, in our field, we talk about the homeostasis, this idea that systems resist change, that we tend to do and repeat whatever we've always done, which is typical. The last thing is she might feel selfish by taking a break. Sure. She doesn't give herself permission to yeah. do that. Like, you don't have to be this busy. You're 86 years old. Yeah. If she sees that as selfishness, then a person that's that caring is not going to do it, right? She sees it as selfishness. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, if I had a chance, I'd want to try to find out what's driving this pattern yeah. of being so overloaded and overwhelmed. Is there something yeah. behind that that maybe she realizes or doesn't realize? Mm -hmm. And but that takes a little bit of time. You're mm -hmm. too busy to have a sit down talk with right. you know, yeah. taking care of others until they break down yeah. physically or emotionally or something. So if what we've heard about Justin is sort of the the iceberg, you're curious what's below the surface there. Yeah. Okay. He's just a people pleasing personality and sure. you have to learn to stand up for yourself and say, No. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. 
the way you said no was really perfect, right? It's like, no, like it does, it's, it's something that does not come out naturally, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is there a hand back? I just say one thing. <clears throat> Joining a team, even as an older person, ah, yeah. having a commitment to yeah. you know, get together with some friends and knock over some bowling pins. Right. And when you're focused on just not the world, but just knocking over that pin. Right, know, right. It's really helpful because yeah. you've, you've got a commitment to be there with your friends. Which is kind of gets to some of what Amy was talking about. about. Yeah. It's already on there. And there's a support system that's there too, right, Dave? Yeah. So, yeah, it's great feedback. Um, I think we're done here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let, me, let me take a moment to kind of speak to the, a couple of biblical examples of this, and then we'll get into some of the, the practical application. And Oh, and as far as Justin's concerned, uh, just set that to the side. We're going to come back to him. We'll circle back to him before we're, we're finished today. Um, this is a, a story that really captures my imagination coming out of Exodus. We all understand that Moses was a leader of great stature. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's one of those heroes of the faith that gets mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Charlton Heston played him in a movie, right? This is a, a, a famous guy. And uh, this is a scene from his life that is not one of those regular scenes that we so frequently associate with the life of Moses. We know about the baby in the basket. We know about the burning bush, the Ten, ten Commandments, the parting of the sea. Here, uh, following the Exodus, we see Moses really in need of, of self-care. Uh, he's in many ways shouldering the burden of this entire nation that he has helped to lead out of captivity. I don't know what it really looked like, but in my mind, if you've ever gone to like the opening night of a big movie, uh, especially back before they started assigning seats to movies, you know, you'd go and there'd be a line out the door, right? before, the, and, and sometimes it would even go and I remember one time standing in a line that curled around Hollywood 27 when it was, when it was new, when it was the new theater in Nashville. I, I, I picture that Moses is in this tent, and here's this unending line of people that are coming to him. You know, uh, mediate this dispute. Give us your final word on, on this issue. You know, just one after another after another. And Moses, he doesn't see it. It's, he doesn't, this is what he's done for some time now. It's what's normal. This is the homeostasis. It takes an outsider to see what Moses sees here. His father-in-law uh, is, is on the scene. And his father-in-law sees this. And he comes to Moses and he says, what you're doing is not good. And not only is it not good for Moses, he goes on to say it's not good for the people that Moses hopes to serve. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot <coughs> handle it alone. This is an important point, actually, in Hebrew history. Uh, from this conversation, you know, there, there are events set in place that we eventually get the judge system 
that uh, took over some of this uh, for the Hebrew people for, for a season before the, the season of the kings. You can't handle it alone. Not only is it not good for you, it's not good for the people that you serve. And of course we know uh, there are multiple examples from the life of Christ where he was always needed, he was always in demand, and, uh, and we, I don't think any of us would be comfortable, uh, certainly I would not be comfortable, um, characterizing Jesus, ever characterizing Jesus' actions as selfish. But he does show, at multiple points in the New Testament, a willingness to engage in self-care. You know, this is just one of those examples where he's drawing boundaries, where he's uh, pulling away, uh, withdrawing to lonely places and, and praying, even in the midst of the needs of, of other people. So. Uh, what would it look like for us to take these examples uh, to try to put into our lives some more intentional self-care? As I mentioned before, I've got some traps to avoid, some tips to apply. We'll come back and check in with our friend Justin and, and we'll be done. Uh, <laughs> traps to avoid. Self-defeating attitudes. If you were here uh, for the first two weeks of the class, Terry did an excellent job of walking us through those cognitive distortions, uh, that, that CBT model of therapy. Uh, there are different um, uh, approximations of this, but uh, one study uh, that was published in 2008 suggested that you have approximately 60,000 thoughts a day. You didn't know you were working that hard, right? 60,000 a day. but. About 95% of those are the same thoughts that you had yesterday, probably. So, for most of these are habitual, right? Uh, the, we don't necessarily even recognize, recognize them as thoughts. But this is what caught my attention. For the average person, 80% of those habitual thoughts might be considered negative. Or uh, uh, the language, did we use the language of distortion when you were teaching? Uh, not psychotic, no, not desirable. Yeah, but not helpful. Yeah. I think in terms of not healthy. Not healthy, self-critical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. self-critical thoughts, right? And so uh, if you didn't get to hear those, those first two weeks, uh, I assume the recording took and is available. Yeah, uh, I, w I would encourage you. I, I think that, that those classes really directly uh, applied to what we can do with our self-defeating beliefs. We recognize that we have those beliefs, we challenge them, we hold them up to the light of what's actually true. Uh, as I understand this, this is not just the power of positive thinking, right? We're not just replacing negative or undesirable thoughts with positive thoughts, sort of blindly positive. Uh, we're holding them up to truth. We're saying, is this is this really true? Is this the only possible interpretation of myself here? Uh, and so self-defeating beliefs certainly are a trap. Uh, this was mentioned when we were talking about Justin a few minutes ago. Poor recognition of boundaries. I love what Cloud and Townsend say in their book, Boundaries. Uh, 
well-known book. Many of you probably have, uh, have been exposed to that book at some point. Uh, but one of their principles of boundaries is that we are responsible to people, but uh, in rarer cases are we responsible for them. Okay? That most of the people in our lives, we have responsibilities to them. Uh, I'm responsible to treat people as Christ would. I'm responsible to be kind, to be caring, uh, to, to do my job. Whatever it is, I have responsibilities to people. But very rarely can I be responsible for them in the sense that I make their choices for them. I choose their beliefs. I choose their attitudes. I can make this person happy. To me, that's an important distinction to and for. Yeah. Uh, I, I, find that, I find that idea uh, helpful. Um, the attempt to accomplish too much can be a trap. Uh, this is uh, actually my, my partner in putting this material together came upon this, this quote. Many of us feel stressed and get overwhelmed not because we're taking on too much, but because we're taking on too little of what really strengthens us. So we're taking on too much of the stuff that doesn't necessarily line up with our natural strengths and our natural personality. Uh, for me, uh, for many years in my work, I found myself persisting. If I had the opportunity to teach, I would persist. I would put a lot of energy into preparing to teach, into the teaching itself. Um, I would want to do more of that, but because of the responsibilities of my job at that time, I kept getting pulled to do more of the stuff that was not energizing for me, that didn't fit my natural skill set as much. So I began to work toward and think about how can I do more of this part of my job that is really where I find energy. I don't have to manufacture it. How can I maximize that? and minimize this, uh, this other piece. I, I, yeah. I have to reinforce that. Yeah, go ahead. Because it is, it is a huge thing that so many of us, and I mean us here, so many of us don't see, I still have to remind myself of it, make your decisions along the way that take you as much as possible back into things that are, quote, life-giving, yeah. energy-giving. When, when I'm teaching, I get energy from that. Yeah. Uh, in a life, previous life, all day meetings would just. Kill <laughs> okay. It's a good practical it's example. Like teaching it maybe, you know? Right, right, no, right. But sitting there. Yeah. So, but identify and be honest with it. It's not a good or bad thing. Yeah. Just we're different. Whatever, whatever may energize you may not energize her and vice versa. I hope teaching energizes you. <laughs> but even too much is right, I'm, I'm going to be quiet. No, I'm you're really going to hijack this if I don't shut up. I appreciate but, it. Yeah. But seriously, be honest with yourself about that. It doesn't mean you're a bad person if you get energy and gravitate toward this thing. Otherwise, it's a trap. Just like you're saying, you end up going down the road where you're depleted before you get started. Yeah. And that's not good for anybody. Amen. Agree. Yeah. Uh, related to this, perfectionism. Um, and when I say related, there, there are probably a lot of things I'm going to say that aren't fully distinct from something else. You know, in a Venn diagram of these things, there would be some overlap. But 
But perfectionism, um, this, this idea that, um, uh, you know, the, the value of what I do is solely uh, determined by the outcome. And my colleague who was here a few weeks ago, Justin was here, some of you were in Justin's class on how counseling works. One of the things that he says regularly that I really appreciate, and he, he works with his clients on this, is focus on the process, which is that which you can control. You can control what you put into the process of something. You can't always fully control the outcome of it. So if I did what I could do in the process, right, even if it didn't come out perfectly, then I can feel good about my efforts, rather than kind of this all or nothing thinking, if it didn't come out perfectly, then what I've done is, is wasted or worthless. Oh goodness, comparison. Oh, um, when we constantly compare ourselves to others, we are sacrificing our own uniqueness. And uh, this, this, is, this has been true since long before social media. I don't want to hold social media up as sort of the, uh, the, the reason that we struggle with comparison. It's just the newest vehicle through which we, we've found a way to do that. Um, you know, the science is coming in, right? The more we learn about it, you know, the more we learn that if I'm constantly comparing my perception of my reality to this curated reality that someone else has put out there, uh, the outcomes are often depression, sadness, anxiety, because I'm falling into this comparison trap constantly. And again, it can happen outside of, uh, of an online context, but that just makes it that much more uh, accessible to us. So these are some things to avoid. But what, what do we put in their place? I want to run through a few of those uh, and uh, see if we have uh, questions or comments. Uh, tips to apply. I'm going to bring these three in together uh, because they, they sort of, uh, I, I think, uh, work together, if you will. Eating intentionally. There's a great little book called Mudhouse Sabbath. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that book. Lauren Winner wrote the book. Lauren I grew up in a uh, Jewish household as an adult. She converted to Christianity, I, I believe, in the Episcopal tradition. And she wrote this little book called Mudhouse Sabbath, uh, essentially what Christians can learn from observant Judaism. So she takes these Jewish customs and traditions, she extracts from them the principles without, you know, without attaching salvation to these things, but she extracts the principles so there's chapters on rest, you know, which flows from the idea of Sabbath. And there, there, are, there are chapters on grieving. Uh, but there's a chapter in there on, on eating with intention, which, you know, she's coming out of a kosher tradition. Uh, and uh, she's saying, you know, you don't, uh, she's not proposing that we eat and observe kosher. You know, that that's not a, you know, you, you read Romans, you read Galatians, certainly that's not a requirement for being followers of Christ today. But she said there was something to that with being thoughtful about how and, and, and what we ate. And uh, I'm certainly not the most knowledgeable person in this room on this kind of subjects, but uh, I would point you to 
uh, other resources for that. Physical activity uh, certainly can be helpful. And uh, also sleep, which um, uh, this is something actually I first heard from Walter Serdaki, and I don't know if he originated this idea or stole it from Amy or what, but uh, he says sleep is an act of trust. He didn't steal that from me. No. <laughs> someone else, it's an acknowledgement that someone else is in control, which I thought was a... I, I was so excited because I'm not great with the spiritual disciplines. And when I heard him say that, like, wait, so I can count sleep? I'm, I'm in. Put me down for the spiritual discipline of sleep. I'm, I'm in for that. Yeah. Sleep, invest in quality, consistent sleep. Invest in you'll never because you get more bang for your buck from where I sit in being well-rested proper quality sleep and I, I, I do this in my practice yeah sleep medicine stuff and oh great it's the biggest bang for your buck you can get almost hands down for the rest of your life because I, nothing else in your life is going to work better when you don't have enough sleep it's going to you know what I'm saying that that affects everything across the board good relationships get better job everything gets better if you keep reinvesting right time effort even in good quality sleep. Yeah. I, can't, I can't stress that. Good stuff. Um, know your type. What I mean here is, um, well, I, I will say I, my uh, assessment of choice is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. I've used it for many, many years uh, in many different contexts. Uh, but whether you find the Myers-Briggs useful, the Enneagram, any, anything that helps you have a better sense of, of who you are, what your, where your talents naturally lie, what your personality lends itself to. You know, the better we know ourselves, the better we can make those choices about what to say no to or what to say yes to. Um, there's, a, there's a great story, John Ortberg's book, The Me I Want to Be. He talks about this guy who goes to a, uh, some kind of Christian conference. And there's a missionary speaking at the conference. And the missionary says, uh, I, I get up every morning at 4 a.m. and I spend time with God. And that's how I, I, I set the agenda for my day. And, um, so this person attending that conference feels bad about himself. He's not doing that. He says, I should be doing that. Uh, I'm going to try to get up uh, at 4 a.m. and spend time with God. It's a miserable failure. Yeah. It doesn't work. And Ortberg says uh, that one place he might have made a mistake is not knowing himself well enough to know, hey, I'm not a morning person. In fact, I'm so not a morning person, even Jesus doesn't want to be with me at four in the morning, right? Um, what, uh, what works for one person may not work for me, whether that's energizing through extroversion, through interaction with others, whether it's energizing through introversion, through uh, time to self. Uh, that's its own class and it's its own workshop. But uh, knowing your type, uh, some of you are, are such that the way you'll do self-care is make a list, right, and check it off. And if you do something that wasn't on the list, you'll go write that down just so you have the satisfaction of checking it off. Others of you are never going to make a list. That's just not naturally what you would do.
Um, refer. This is in particular for the helping professions, professionals in the group, but really for any of you. Uh, what did Moses' father-in-law say? Right? You, you can't handle all of this alone, and that's okay. It's, it's one of the first things that we teach people when we're training them to become therapists um, uh, is, is that referral is sometimes the best option, and yet once we get into doing the work, we, we're often so hesitant to do that. There's some kind of worthiness issue or something tied up in there. One of the things that David Rubio, I've heard him tell covenant group leaders as they're preparing to work with teens is if the real you isn't enough, God will have to use someone else. Don't try to be something you're not. It's okay if you can't meet every need of every single individual. Uh, engaging with God and engaging with uh, God's community. Uh, this is, uh, again, there's some probably some individuality that needs to be considered about how best to do this. But uh, this is, uh, these are certainly important uh, parts of self-care for, for many of us. Um, I'm watching the time, so I'm going to get the rest of these up here so we have a few minutes. Uh, tangible tasks. Uh, the business of helping people is often without immediate tangible results. Um, on Monday and Tuesday, the psych offices at Lipscomb moved for the first time in like four decades out of the, if you're familiar with campus, we've been in the basement of Ward for many, many, many years. Uh, I don't know how many. Paul Turner's been here 30, been at Lipscomb 37 years, and that's the only place his office has ever been. So we moved across campus to Ezel, and I was carrying stuff. And uh, somebody stopped me and asked if I had a, a, you know, a new job on campus as a mover. And I said, I'll tell you what, so much of what I do here has no immediate tangible result. I'm enjoying the fact that this was over here and it's about to be over there, right? I can point to it. And so if that's, you know, if you're a person that creates something tangible uh, in your professional life, then, then this is something you're already doing. But if you don't get that, um, you know, it's why I love to mow the grass. It was high, now it's low, right? I can point to it, I actually did something, because I don't get to do that often, at least not in a quick turnaround with, with what I do on a daily basis. Uh, give yourself grace. My favorite, sometimes in my therapy practice, I'll have a therapist as a client, which those are, those are always great clients, you know. Uh, they're so, <laughs> I only mean that partially ironically, right? There's some real strengths that, the, that they bring as clients, that we bring as clients. But one of my favorite things to say when, I, when I've got a, a helping professional that's, you know, engaging in these kind of self-defeating beliefs is, uh, okay, so if, if this was your client, you know, or your parishioner that was saying this to you, what would you tell them? Would you tell them the same thing you're telling yourself? Well, no, no, of course not. Okay, right. So you would give grace to someone else. What would it look like? Let's talk about what it might look like to give grace to yourself. And then this last one, uh, I'll, I'll come back to in a second because it ties us back around to Justin, but uh, our, our uh, example here. But let me stop before I do that and 
are we, do we end at 15 till or 10? Okay. Okay. Comments that you think might be helpful for others in the room? Yes? Okay. Oh, okay. It's, it's just called Boundaries, and the authors are Cloud and Townsend. And there's an original book, and then there's a number of spinoffs, if you will, Boundaries in Marriage, Boundaries with Kids. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in class. It's okay. the same book. Okay. But the original is just boundary, Boundaries with Pets. I don't know what all they have. Boundaries with Children, Boundaries with Teenagers. <laughs> You only need one good book in you, and then you just can rewrite it. But yeah, Boundaries is the name of the book. They are good. Yeah. Yeah, and I work for the company that makes it, and there's a new one. Oh, awesome. Okay. Is it Pets? Is it Boundaries with Pets? Am I right? Oh, no. Oh, they've updated the original. I'd like to get my hands on that. I haven't seen that. Boundaries with Boundaries. Boundaries with Boundaries. But another book that I think is really good for women is Vicki Courtney writes Rest Assured. Okay. And it is about, you know, the women are just, you know, you, you become the sacrificial lamb. And her right. take on it is, not only is it not good for you in all those ways you talked about, but yeah. she's like, it's actually sinful. That's interesting. And I haven't really heard anyone say that yeah. before, but she's like, you are putting yourself in the place of God. You think the whole world will collapse without <laughs> your intervention. Right. And your direction. And that you're creating your busyness as an idol. An idol. And, and, it, and you know, you need to go back to grace, and you need to go back to boundaries mm. and all these things. But she really comes out strong in it. And, and I'm a workaholic, so it was very convicting when I was reading right. the book. And I'm like, oh, I'm reading the book at one in the morning. Uh, I can't do the marketing <laughs> for it, but it was, you know, it was very convicting. Right. Of like, I think I'm helping her. Yeah. And I, at the same time, I'm thinking well, I can make her book a bestseller. Will you say the, the name of it one more time? Rest Assured. Rest Assured. Okay. It's like Thank a recovery you. plan for the weary soul. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me, I just had an idea. If, if uh, some of you already texted me things, but if you want to text me some, if you have a favorite book that pertains to what we're talking about in here, go ahead and text it to me, email it to me, and we'll try to share some of those uh, on the last class period. If, if you have one really top of your list, we'll, we'll disseminate that through the class. Did you have a uh, comment? Miss Damon, number on the Enneagram that is found to this. Uh, if you'd ask me a Myers-Briggs question, I could, I could go. But... Uh, well, I think what I would say is that there is a preference on the Myers-Briggs that has a harder time saying no. And that's on the third of the four dichotomies, thinking versus feeling. T's uh, typically, uh, ha and it's not that T's don't care about people, but because they're more objective in their decision making, it tends to come easier for them to say no than for those of us who know we're feelers on the Myers-Briggs. which overwhelmingly people in the helping profession are. Overwhelmingly. So. Yes? You said there's a Stanford professor, um, B.J. Fogg, who does behavior design in the okay. tech world. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the things that you discussed on tips to or traps to avoid yes. apply, he focuses on celebration of all the little things yeah. and not reward. I, I don't He talked about there's a psychiatry or there's a professional definition for reward maybe y'all can speak to that but he was just talking about don't reward yourself because if you don't get it you you start falling into those traps to avoid you beat yourself up so i see focus on the little things and celebrate it just tell yourself good job some of that process versus outcome yeah. stuff I yeah tasks, so like find those yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> great thank you 
Uh, for the sake of time, let me take us back to Justin, and this will be the last word. So my, my last point up here is uh, really doing our own self-reflective work. And um, here's what, uh, what's kind of underneath the iceberg for Justin as, as he comes to know himself better, what he would realize. And it actually ties into this idea of self-idolatry to some degree. Uh, Justin had little awareness that the central role of his priesthood was the role of his childhood. His mother was an alcoholic who was congenial on occasion, but she was basically unreliable and undependable. Therefore, like many children of alcoholics, Justin became a parentified child in relationship to his mother. And if you're familiar with ACA and the laundry list, um, that, that fits very much with the adult children of alcoholics uh, material. Uh, so he parented his mother. He saw his father as a flake and a wimp. He too was not trustworthy, and he was neither an advocate for his only child, Justin, nor was he willing to be a firm adult instead of an enabler with his alcoholic wife. So it did not take the brains of a rocket scientist for Justin as a little boy to figure out that his survival and his unreliable family of origin depended on his being the rescuer, helper, and savior. What he had not come to grips with in adulthood was that he still maintained the operative worldview. The operative worldview that there is an unreliable and undependable ultimate authority clumsily and ineptly in charge of the universe. Thus, Justin still had to play a pseudo-savior in church, religious community, friendships, and so on. He was stuck with the idolatry of a perceived weak and ineffective God and a defensive survival strategy of hanging himself on a cross of over-responsibility to save the people around him and himself. Strong words, right? Uh, and, and we may not all see ourselves fully in him, but we may find some part of ourselves in that story. Um, let, let me just uh, dedicate this in prayer and, the, and then we'll be done. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being with us at all times and including right now father we we pray that that we would leave this not not discouraged uh that we're not good enough at self-care but perhaps encouraged that uh that there is there is some hope something that we can put into practice in an effort to uh, be better versions uh, of ourselves and in an effort to uh uh, be able to more fully celebrate uh, the life we have as imperfect as it is. Thank you for Jesus, who is a phenomenal example of living this life, and uh, it's through him that we pray. Amen. Thank you. So next week, uh, Leslie Owsley, next week. <laughs>